Volume One, Chapter Thirteen of Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume One, Chapter Thirteen. Every man's progress is through a succession of teachers. Emerson. As John slowly climbed to the hill of convalescence, many visitors came to relieve his solitude, and one of those who came the oftenest was Lord Frederick Fane. Lord Frederick was a square-shouldered, well-preserved, well-set-up, carefully-padded man of close on sixty, with a thin-lipped, bloodless face and faded eyes divided by a high nose. "'Do you like that man?' said Lord Hemsworth to John one day when he was sitting with him, and Lord Frederick sat up to know whether the latter would see him. "'No,' said John. "'But you seem to see a good deal of him.' He is civil to me, and I am not rude to him. He is a relation, you know. I can't stand him, said Lord Hemsworth. If he's coming up, I shall bolt. And Lord Frederick entering at that moment, Lord Hemsworth took his departure. You are better, John, said Lord Frederick, looking at him through his half-closed eyes, and settling himself gently in a high chair, his hat and one glove and crutch-handled stick held before him in his broad, lean hand. I feel more human, said John now that I'm shaved and dressed. When I saw myself in the glass yesterday for the first time, I thought I was Darwin's missing link. "'You look more human,' said Lord Frederick, crossing one leg over the other, and then contemplating his white spats for a change. "'Able to attend to business again yet?' "'Not yet. I've tried, but I'm as weak as a worm that can't turn.' "'Pity,' said Lord Frederick, glancing at a sheaf of letters and some opened telegrams on the table at John's elbow. "'Things always happen at inconvenient times,' he went on. "'Old Charlesworth might have chosen a more opportune moment to die and leave Marshamley vacant again.' "'He's not dead yet. I suppose both sides have been at you already, to stand for it yourself,' as did Lord Frederick. "'Yes, I thought so.' Silence. "'Are you going to stand?' "'What is your opinion on the subject? I see you have one.' "'Well,' said Lord Frederick, "'I look at it this way.' I have often said, don't tie yourself. I am all for young men keeping their hands free and seeing the ins and outs of life before they settle down. But you are not so very young, and a time comes when a sort of annoyance attaches to freedom itself. It's a bore. As to this seat, indecision is all very well for a time. It enhances a man's value. You were quite right not to stand three years ago. It made you of more importance. But that won't do much longer. You are bound to come to a decision for your own advantage. Neutral ground is sometimes between two fires. I should say stand, if you ask me. Throw in your lot with the side on which you are most likely to come to the front, and stand. And private opinions? How about them, if they don't happen to fit? Throw them overboard? Yes, said Lord Frederick. It's got to be done sooner or later. Why not sooner? A freelance is no matter of use. There's a hitch somewhere in you, John that if you don't look out will damn your career as a public man. I don't know what your politics are. My own opinion between ourselves is that you have not got any. But you are bound to have some, and you may as well join forces with what will bring you forward most, and start young. That's my advice. Thanks. There's not a man in the world with an ounce of brains which has not high-flown ideas at your age, continued Lord Frederick. I've had them. Everybody's had them. You buy them with your first razors. People generally sicken with them just when they could make a push for themselves. 
and while they're getting better, youth and opportunity pass and don't come back. Seen it over and over again. Every young fool with a ginger moustache when he first starts in public life is going to be a patriot and do his damn thinking for himself. He might as well make his own clothes and expect society to receive him in them. By the time he's bald, he's learnt better, and he's a party man. But he's lost time in the meanwhile. He may depend upon it. A strong party man is what is wanted. The country doesn't want individuals with brains. They are mostly kicked out in the end. If you don't want to go with the crowd, don't go against it, but throw yourself into it heart and soul, and get in front of it on its own road. It's no good coming to the fore unless you have a following. Thanks, said John again. His face was as expressionless as a mask. He looked, as he lay back in his low couch, a strange mixture of feebleness and power. It was as if a strong man armed kept watch within a house tottering to its fall. He put out his muscular, powerless hand, and took up one of the telegrams. "'Charlesworth is not dead yet,' he said. Lord Frederick could take a hint. "'His death will put the Mortons in mourning again,' he remarked. "'Mrs. Morton's ball is doomed. I'm sorry for the woman. She's cumbered with much time-serving, and her ball fell through last year. This is the second time it has happened. I've been asking her young men for her. I put down your cousin of the guards, the Apollo with the tow-wig. What's his name? Uh, Tempest? Archibald. Yes. That would be a dangerous man if he were not such a fool. But the same placard that says he is to let says he is unfurnished and it's poor work taking an empty house when it comes to living in it. Women know that. He's let the soda-water heiress slip through his fingers. She's going to marry young Topham. I thought Apollo seemed rather down on his luck when it was first given out, but he's consoled himself since. Apparently he has a mission to married women. He's always with Lady Verelst now. I saw him riding with her again this morning. I don't know who mounts him, but he was on the best horse I've seen this season. "'You're not such a fool, such a philanthropist, as to lend him horses, are you?' "'When I can't use them myself, I have that amount of generosity.' Huh. "'Well, he makes good of use of his opportunities to cheer up Lady Verelst. "'I wish you would flirt more with married women, John. "'You would find your account in it. I did at your age. "'You see, you are too eligible to go on much with girls, and that's the truth. "'You'd be watched. "'But you don't pay enough attention to women, and—' Three-quarters of the world is made up of them. Too much of a Puritan. But you may remember human nature is like a short-footed stocking. If you dart it up at the hill, it will come out of the toe. It's no manner of use to ignore women. People who do always come the worst croppers in the end. A flirtation with a fast married woman would peel your illusions off you like the skin off an orange. All young men believe in women, until they know them. <laughs> if I were a rabbit, I should take a personal interest in the habits of birds of prey. I told Hemsworth something of the kind the other day, but he is bent on making a fool of himself. He knows his own affairs best. <laughs> I fancy I know them better than he does. Miss Dye is young, but she's uncommonly well aware of her own value, and she's looking higher. I should not wonder if she tried to marry you. She'll take him in five years' time, if he's still willing.' she outstands her market. But in the meantime she keeps him dangling. I told him so, and that I admired her for it. She holds her head high, but she is a splendid creature, and no mistake. She has not that expectant, anxious look about her that you see in other girls. She's not made up. It's sterling good looks in her case. 
If you are interested in that quarter, you may take my word for it. It is all genuine, even to her hair. That is why her frank manner is so telling. It's of a piece with the rest. She knows how to play their cards. The old woman has taught her a thing or two. What a knowledge you have of human nature. I have looked about, said Lord Frederick, rising as gently as he had sat down and pulling up his shirt-collar. I have my eyes open pretty young, and I have kept them open ever since. Glad you better. That black devil in tights of a poodle wants shaving as much as you did last time I saw you. No, don't rig for that melancholy valet. I'll let myself out. I dare say I shall be in again in the course of a day or two. Ta-da! John crushed the telegram he was still holding into a hard ball as soon as his self-constituted guide, philosopher, and friend had left the room. Cynicism was not new to him. It is cheap enough to be universally appropriated by the poor in spirit, for whom generosity and tolerance are commodities too expensive to be indulged in. Our belief in human nature is a foot-rule by which we may be accurately measured ourselves. There are those in whose enlightened eyes purity herself is only a courtesan in fancy dress. John had already had many teachers, for he was a man who was being educated regardless of expense. But perhaps to no two persons did he owe so much as to Mr. Goodwin and Lord Frederick Fane. Our elders act as danger signals oftener than they know. John's room looked out across the park. His couch had been drawn near the open window, and to lie and watch the passing crowd of carriages and pedestrians was almost as much excitement as he could bear after the darkened rooms and enforced quiet of the last few weeks. John, with Linda erect on the vacant chair beside him, saw Lord Frederick's hansom, with his pale profile inside it, turn down Park Lane below his windows. Payne had burned all John's energy out of him for the time, and he had soon forgotten his annoyance in watching the people attempting to cross the thoroughfare and in counting the omnibuses that passed. It was all he was up to. It was about five in the afternoon, and carriage after carriage turned into the park at the gates opposite his window. There went Lady Delmore with her brand-new daughter, a sweet wild rose from the country that must be perfected by London smuts and gaslight. John pointed her out to Lindo, but he only yawned and looked the other way. There was Mrs. Barker walking with her husband. Those two white parasols he had danced with somewhere, but he could not put a name to them. Neither could Lindo when asked. Another red omnibus. This was the tenth red one within the last half hour. Royalty went flashing by, bowing and bowed to. John obliged Lindo, whom he suspected of democratic tendencies, to make a bow also. He hoped his nurse would not come in and send him back to bed yet. It was really very interesting watching the passers-by. Was that? No, it was not. Yes, it was Lady Verelst with red parasol and husband to match, in the Victoria with the greys. There was actually Duchess, his old polo pony, whom he had not seen since he sold her three years ago, looking as spry as ever. John craned his neck to see the last of the bobtail of his old favourite whisk round the corner. A moment later, Mrs. Courtney and Di, erect and fair beside her, spun past in the opposite direction. Before he had time to realise that he had seen her, almost before he had recognised her, the momentary glimpse struck him like a blow. His head swam, 
his heart, so languid the moment before, leapt up and struggled like a maddened, caged animal. She had passed some time before he was conscious of anything but the one fact that he had seen her. He stumbled to his feet and walked unsteadily across the room, clutching at the furniture. He seemed to have left his legs behind. "'What am I doing?' he said to himself half aloud, holding on to and swaying against a table. "'What has happened? Why did I get up?' He dragged himself back to his couch again and sank down, exhausted. The excursion had been too much for him. He had not walked so far before. He was bewildered. Through the open window came the jingle and the clip-clop and the hum. Another red omnibus passed. But there was a loud knocking at the door of John's heart that deafened him to all beside. The peremptory knocking, as of one armed with a claim, who stood without and would not be denied. End of Volume 1, Chapter 13 End of Volume 1